So you can just like I told you last week that every journey has a destination. I want to remind you this week that every story has a beginning, has a, an introduction. And the story of Christmas is no different because it actually began long before the actual birth of Christ. And that's kind of really the whole point of a day like today and a season like the one we're entering. Because even though it starts us again down the path to Bethlehem's manger, it does so with kind of a, a glance over the shoulder of the past and a, a recollection of the promises that God has made for his people in times long past when prophets and seers and priests and kings have been given a glimpse into the future at an eventual day of the world. A day that would upend humanity and usher in the advent of the Messiah, not only in his earthly nativity, but in the fullness of his sovereign majesty to redeem a people for himself. A people that would become all that he had created them to be. And we're going to be looking at kind of all of those things today inside not only the birth narrative of Christ and the narrative of his return, but more specifically, kind of as we view it through the lens of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians that we've been waiting through these past several weeks. So I hope you have your own Bibles with you. Open up to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading you the first four verses this morning. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need for us to write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Gracious Father, in these next fleeting moments, empty our minds of preoccupations, distractions, and fill our hearts, Father, with the gift of faith through the reading and the hearing of your word. Until we see Jesus there, in his name we pray. Amen. So just to kind of reset the scene for you, if you remember from last week, we looked at the, the closing verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that deal with the second coming of Christ and with the misplaced fear that some folks had at the time that they may have somehow missed it. And so Paul is writing to them to, to set them straight. And now today the Apostle continues with the same subject in chapter 5 and he introduces it with the word but. Uh, and it's essential to remember when you come upon the word but in Scripture, it means in general that you're kind of turning the corner. That the same subject is still being covered, but from a different perspective and maybe a little different direction. And so uh, I also want to take a moment here to just to pause and have you remember what we said about not getting sidetracked by chapter divisions in the Bible. There's no such thing in the original, and unfortunately when they come up, sometimes they can interrupt the thought flow as, as they clearly do here between chapters 4 and 5. So just keep in mind that the beginning of chapter 5 that I just read you merely continues the theme of the closing verses of chapter 4, where Paul is helping his audience come to grips with the question of the timing of our Lord's return. And so he says to them, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written. And that's because even though 
church Paul had planted in Thessalonica was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, Paul would have been in the planting of it, pointing them to scripture passages and to the teachings of Jesus about his first and second coming. And the idea really that we can know he's coming, but never exactly when. Because his, his appearing is always and at once eminent and unexpected. It's always kind of looming but startling. It's always impending but as unpredictable, we're told, as a thief in the night. Uh, and even though that's more specifically targeted to his second coming, it's been that way since the very beginning of the story. Because although the people expected the Messiah to appear in Bethlehem, they did not expect him to appear there as if by accident. Although they expected the birth of a king, they certainly didn't expect him to be born without dignity in an outbuilding full of sheep. And although they expected him to be hailed upon his arrival, they did not expect it to be shepherds and foreign astrologers to be the ones to welcome him. While their own religious leaders who knew the prophecies by heart completely missed him. Because although God always warns us about how things are going to happen, it always comes unexpectedly and in the unlikeliest of ways. Which incidentally uh, is exactly how the very first original Christmas message came into the world. And I'm going to show it to you this morning in what for many might be the last place you'd expect to find it. Uh, and that's in the book of Genesis. Because in the very first Christmas message ever delivered was preached and given by the creator himself to the whole human race in the form of just Adam and Eve. Along with Satan in the audience as the hapless congregation. In the unlikely venue of the Garden of Eden as the sanctuary. And that message comes in the improbable midst of a curse that's being pronounced by God upon his creation. So if you remember the scene after Adam uh, sins and then tries to pass the blame for his sin to Eve. Eve tries to pass on the blame for the serpent. God addresses the serpent who his primary quarrel was with. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike his heel. That's it. That's the very first Christmas message and promise of the gospel. And it introduces two elements that are the basis of Christianity, namely the curse upon mankind because of Adam's sin and God's provision for sending us a Savior who would take that curse upon himself. So just in case at this point if you're going like, hey, Pastor, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Think of it like this. See, the whole reason for the birth of Christ and therefore the Christmas holiday itself would be completely unnecessary if it were not for our sin. Because yes, Jesus is the reason for the season, but ultimately sin is the reason for his incarnation. And the sin of mankind is the backdrop against which the glorious first message of Christmas was given. And you know, we can never fully understand the glory of that Christmas message until we understand the depth of mankind's sin, because it wasn't just a little thing. Charles Spurgeon once said, few preachers of religion, believe of religion believe thoroughly the doctrine of the fall, or else they think that when Adam fell down, he merely broke his little finger and not his whole neck and ruined the race. But Adam's fall did ruin the human race, and because of our sin, we need a Savior. And, and so it's right here in Genesis 3.15 where this unusual circumstance surrounding the birth of Christ is first revealed, where he's called her seed. The seed of the woman, which is really 
you think about it, it's kind of an unusual way to describe a child because normally we would think of a seed as coming from the man. But this birth was going to be different. And now, of course, you know, you could say, well, maybe he's just referring to the fact that Christ would descend from a woman, but later Revelation spells out in more detail the implications of the promise that appeared here in, in seed form, if you pardon the pun. When Isaiah said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's, that's God with us in the seed of the woman. And if there was any doubt about this prophecy applying to Christ, later Matthew clarifies in, in chapter 1, verse 18, writing, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that we just talked about. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. You see, Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago as that unique seed of the woman who was, was born of a virgin, who came as God's deliverer to defeat the serpent Satan himself, finally putting in motion that promise from Genesis 4,000 years earlier. And I like how uh, pastor and author Doug Wilson writes about this uh, in describing that first Christmas message. Here's what he said. He said, Bethlehem was the opening gambit in the last campaign of a long war. Many centuries after our father Adam had first plunged our race into the insanity of sin, God made his opening move. Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under law, was born to fulfill every one of the numerous promises that God made during our long night. At the beginning of our world, he says, scarcely had our race fallen into sin and darkness, but our father God swore that the seed of the woman would have vengeance upon the serpent promising us a glorious deliverance. And so for long ages, the faithful looked ahead to that undefined day, figuring, studying, mentally groping, but fundamentally, trustingly asking, what form would the dragon slayer take? And the unexpected answer was a baby. A little baby. Born in an unlikely place and amidst uncertain circumstances where, where history tells us that in those days it is went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And when you look at that, th those huge names from history, what really strikes me is that the events that Luke goes on to describe in Jesus' birth narrative seem so incredibly small by comparison in such a great big world. Right? I mean, what does the mighty Emperor Augustus or Governor Quinarius care about? a pregnant teenager or some wandering shepherds. Right? Mary and, and Joseph and the rest of the folks around the manger seem so insignificant compared to the rulers of their day. And yet, 
Luke declares that whether the rich and powerful leaders care or not, heck, whether they even notice or not, the unlikely events that Luke describes in detail are going to change the world. And that's a pretty bold statement when you think about it. Right? That the birth of a baby to an unwed teen in the squalor of a backwater town could possibly matter. And that, there it is in a nutshell. It's the promise of the gospel. That God regularly shows up where we least expect God to be. Interrupting our time with his eternity. Like when that silence of Earth's dark night was broken by the angelic announcement. And whereas one author said, by the call of the miraculous entering the mundane and the monotonous, the pure calling to our impurity, the power to change appealing to our intransigence. That's the miracle that we need to change our world. In the story of Earth's greatest visitation, and in that miracle of the incarnation, Jesus shows us that we as human beings are not just atoms. We're not just, just made of matter, that we're, we're more than the stuff of which we're made. Right? We're more than just our economic production. We're more than just our relationships or our biology or our psychology. We are image bearers of Almighty God who carry incredible value and significance. Value so high that Jesus was willing to pay the price of his life to redeem and restore that image that we have intentionally broken. As another author said that the mirror of our souls might be angled at him and reflect the true image of God as it was intended. And that in so doing, we might be truly human in the light of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, although this world may sometimes seem dark and forsaken, and all of those headlines we read uh, and worry about can, can have their day, but one day they're all going to fade into the backdrop. They're going to fade into the backdrop of this little Christmas story that we've been telling now for the past 2,000 years. And I realize that can sound kind of simplistic, especially when, and this, this happened this last week quite a bunch of times. So many people have, have shared the struggles that they're facing. So many of us struggle to see God amidst the world's bad news. And when so many more are wondering, where is God in the midst of their own more private pain? The pain of broken relationships or lost loved ones, the pain of illness or job loss or, or depression, or, or maybe for some it's just that we get caught up in the day-to-day -day routine of making ends meet that we have a hard time imagining that God could possibly make a difference in our little individual worlds. And, and sure, maybe, you know, you might believe in God in general, but, but sensing God's presence, let alone seeing God in the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives, that's sometimes a different story. You know, maybe sometimes in your pessimism, you relate a little better to the secular humanist professor Richard Dawkins, who said, this is a quote from him, he said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He'd be fun at a Christmas party, wouldn't he? <laughs> right? A man who can examine the complexities of the universe and not see God. But we know better, right? We know the universe is not like that because we know something, and better yet, we know someone that Hawkins somehow missed and that you can't afford to miss. The God of the universe revealed in his word. 
that not only created humanity, but condescended to become one of us, just as John chapter 1 tells us, so that the word became human, or became flesh, and made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Right? But do people really see it? Do you see it when you're too busy pursuing your own agenda? And looking to yourself for answers. So that I, the problem, I think, is not really that it's impossible to see God, but rather that we're so prone to looking in all the wrong places to try to find Him. But you know, our faith is not like that. Our faith, as unexpected as it may sound to some, looks reality straight in the face and calls it like it is. Because when you go to God's Word, it's not like reading, it's not a pie in the sky book of fantasy. It's about very real things in a very real life. You know, between the pages of Scripture, God unfolds narratives that are full of brutal murders and sexual affairs, manipulations and extortions, so that with story after story, we begin to see that evil has stained all of us. In fact, that's why Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and are therefore separated from God. Yet at the same time, throughout the biblical narrative, God also weaves the promise and the appearance of a Savior. Right, giving us our, our hope for the future that we can be redeemed. And our hope for the present that we're not alone, but that we are loved and that we have a purpose. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. Hope even for your past. Right, that your failures are not greater than God's power to transform you. And when we talk about hope, when we as believers speak as hope, we don't mean a desire that may or may not be fulfilled. No, our hope is certain because brothers and sisters, our hope for forgiveness and for reconciliation with God and eternal life rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And recognizing that he alone brings contentment regardless of material possessions. And joy despite difficult circumstances. And that joy and that hope is something that nothing can destroy because it's stored in heaven where no earthly power can touch it. That's why 1 Peter 1, 3 says, he begins with a praise. He says, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Pure and undefiled. Beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation. So when you read that, can you begin to see how much God loves us? Right? Just think of it. That the creator of the whole cosmos would even bother to know we exist. Uh, on what some have described as an insignificant planet and surrounding a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten universe. Uh, in which there are far more galaxies than there are people. But brothers and sisters, God knows us personally. He knows you personally. In this universe of over 100 billion galaxies. And he doesn't just know you. He doesn't just know you exist. He loves you. And he cherishes you. That's almost too good to be true. But then to come as a baby to actually be with us is almost unbelievable. But it's true that God so loved the world at Christmas. When the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became that unlikely babe in the manger, that he might become the man of the cross. That he might die as our perfect substitute to release us from the penalty of sin and reconcile us to God. Now, that tiny baby in Bethlehem, Slipping into the world almost as Paul told us this morning, like that thief in the night. 
like that thief while people are saying there's peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Sounds just like that first Christmas morning, doesn't it? When God sent his eternal word into the world whose first cry spelled doom for the evil rulers of this world system and for all the false prophets of a compromised gospel of fake peace and safety through capitulation with evil. And church, that word that was sent into the world is Christ. And his cry is still going out, but now it's not the cry of an infant, but the cry of the infinite king of glory that is still speaking. So stop and listen. Because brothers and sisters, he's coming back. And even though I can't tell you when, I can't tell you exactly when it needn't take you by surprise either for you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Because while Christ's followers may not know the day of his return, we stand ready. Because we know we have a place in the family of God. And so we don't have to live in fear or trepidation of that day of Jesus' return. In fact, we can hope for it. We pray for it. And at the same time, our calling is to be mindful of how we can use the time we're given here on earth to live lives that honor Jesus. And to be those ones who lovingly speak the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Doing it in season and out of season. All through the season of Advent and beyond. And so brothers and sisters, I call on you today in his name to step out of darkness. Repent and believe the gospel while we pray. Father God is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by Jesus Christ and asking you now by the joy of his incarnation and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so that we confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened and that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.